Please follow your Bibles with me, or read along on the screen behind me, as we first turn to Isaiah chapter 25. The sermon this morning is based on Matthew 22, the verses 1 through 14, which we will read uh, in a couple, after a couple passages, just to set a bit of context. So this is the Old Testament um, context of, of a theme that Jesus carries into the parable that we'll be reading from. So Isaiah 25, the verses 1 through 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As far from Isaiah 25, we'll flip forward now to the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And first we're going to read um, from Matthew chapter 21, um, which, which just sets the stage a little bit. Jesus has, has traveled back to Jerusalem. He knows he's on his way to the cross. And now he's arrived in Jerusalem. Triumphal entry happened. Everyone was rejoicing to see him calling out Hosanna, which means save us. Um, And then Jesus sort of goes into the temple, leaves, comes back the next day, um, and and there he's confronted by the classic classic enemies in the gospel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the, um, teachers of the law. And he's confronted in verses 23 to 27. Um, If you have an ESV Bible, you might see that it says there uh, as a subtitle, The Authority of Jesus Challenged. So let's read those verses together. And when he, that's Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then following this, Jesus tells two parables. We're not going to read both of those parables, um, but the theme of them is, is kind of the same, and it leads into the parable that we're going to read from. Particularly, there's the parable of the tenants in which 
This, this vineyard is leased out to tenants, and when the landlord goes to collect, um, they reject all the messengers, killing them, mistreating them, until eventually he sends his son, and they do the same thing to him. Um, and the meaning of these parables are not lost on the experts of the law and on the Pharisees. I don't know if it'll be up here, but in verses 45 to 46, so the very end of, of chapter 21, right after he tells that parable of the, of the tenants, it says this, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They knew. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they figured it out at this point. Jesus is talking about them. And then Jesus goes on to tell one more parable, which is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, which is also our text for this morning. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we open up to Matthew 22 this morning, we find ourselves not only near the end of the book of Matthew, but also near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is a parable that Jesus tells in the context of what is commonly called the Passion Week. The Passion Week. That's the the last week of Christ's earthly ministry leading up to the cross. It's Wednesday here um, when he tells this parable, and on Thursday he will be arrested in the garden, and on Friday he will have nails driven through his hands and his feet. And so this is a parable that Jesus told with a sense of, of urgency, as his relationship with Israel's leaders has been, has been heating up until now here in Jerusalem, things have really hit a boiling point. For the past three years, Jesus has been preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. For the past three years, he's been, he's been driving out demons and driving back disease and death. For the past three years, he's been proclaiming himself as, as the promised Messiah in the flesh. And what... What is the result of those three years? Rejection. Rejection by Israel's leaders and rejection by by most of the population as well. And so Jesus tells a series of parables, each of them designed to confront Israel's leaders and, and the wider population for that rejection. The parable before us this morning 
as I said, is the third and final of the bunch. And it's a parable that, that is meant to leave us sort of shaking our heads at, at the utter senselessness of the characters in it. And it's a parable designed to send a very direct message to, to its original hearers. But as we'll see, it's also a parable that continues to speak very pointedly to us today as well. And so this morning, I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you for, under this theme. The king calls everyone to come and celebrate his son. Will you come? And there are, there are three points. I don't know if they're on the screen. Um, but the first point is the wrong response. The second point is, is the wrong sorts of people, wrong in air quotes. And then the third point is the wrong clothes. And so point number one, the wrong response. Jesus begins this parable with a few important and um, common words in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. This is a central theme in Jesus' teaching ministry and, and in many of his parables. But the way he proclaimed the kingdom was not the way in which the people of that day expected. He didn't preach about, about taking up swords and, and driving out the foreign invaders, but about repenting and believing. The kingdom that Christ was proclaiming was first and foremost about the rule of God over the hearts and lives of men. It was a kingdom of redemption accomplished through his son, and it wasn't the kingdom that the Jews were expecting. It wasn't the kingdom that they thought they knew a lot about. And so Jesus tells a lot of parables in his ministry that are meant to clear up misconceptions about this kingdom and also to teach people these spiritual truths about this kingdom, which isn't what they expected. And so what is this kingdom like? Well, it's like a wedding feast, a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And nobody throws a feast like a royal. A wedding feast was, was the biggest celebration back then for, for anyone, no matter what your sort of social status was. And, and they lasted for at least at least several days. There are even reports in the ancient records of wedding feasts lasting from anywhere from 7 to 14 days. And so this being the wedding feast of the king's son, you can be sure that, that this was going to take place on a scale unimaginable to the common people. This was the biggest party that anyone could dream up. But just like nowadays, not just anyone was invited to a royal wedding. To be invited to the wedding feast of the king's son would be an honor of the highest degree. You are on his special list. He has handpicked you to be there. He wants you there. And you'd have to be, you'd have to be totally crazy to say no. You have other plans already? You cancel those plans. You are on the king's special list. And by comparing the kingdom to a great wedding feast, the people of that time would have had a pretty good idea of what Jesus was, was talking about, of what the theme of this parable was. In the Old Testament, a great banquet is, is a common image of the glorious end times when God's people will, will fellowship and feast with God himself. We read that in Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well 
refined. Those are images meant to just evoke the, the, best, the best food possible. And so by using this image of a feast, it's clear to the people of that day, and it should also be clear to us, that what Jesus is going to reveal is about, or about the kingdom of heaven, is, has something to do with, with the end, with the end times. And so what, what is he going to say? Who's invited to this great feast at the end times? Verse 3, the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. In those days, there was a custom of, of double invitations. The people who had already been invited need to be called again because it wasn't that easy like it is today to pull all the elements together and have your feast ready exactly when you wanted it. You couldn't just go to Superstore and the wedding store and, and have everything ready to go all at once. And so there was this custom of sending out an initial invitation that was sort of like, like a save the date, but a bit, more, a bit more imprecise, kind of like a be ready sometime in the near future. And, and then once all the moving parts had been pulled together and, and the wedding feast was ready to go, then a second invitation would go out, calling all of those who had been invited to the feast to come. The time is ready, now come. And that's what's going on in verse 3. And literally, in Greek, we, don't, we can't see this in English, but those who are invited, the servants go out to call the the previously being invited ones. That's just one word in Greek, the previously being invited ones. And so these characters in this parable are defined by that very fact that they are the ones who have been invited to the king's feast. That's their identity, the previously being invited ones. And you can imagine what, what an honor that would be, what a point of pride. Perhaps these people sort of swaggered around town, making sure everyone knew that they were the ones who had been invited to the king's feast. And now, the time is here. And in light of, of the context, in light of the two parables that take place before this, what happens next is not really surprising, but if you just immerse yourself in the story and, and the context of, of what's going on in the story, the next line is, is utterly jaw-dropping. The previously being invited ones would not come. What? Perhaps the king said, it, I must, have, I must have misheard you. They won't, they won't come? There, there must be a good reason for this, or, or perhaps a mistake? You see, to turn down this invitation is crazy. Not only is this the highest honor you could, you could really ever hope to experience, but there's more to it than that. To, to turn down the king's invitation is tantamount to treason. The king has, has politely invited you, yes, but he's also really he's ordered you to be there. And so to say no is treason. But this king is surprisingly gracious based, based off of that information. He's patient and persistent in pursuing his invited guests. He, he sends out more servants, this time with incentives to make those stubborn guests come. He says, see, I, I've prepared my dinner. Look, look at all that I've done for you. My, my calves and my oxen are, are slaughtered. The best food, everything is ready. It's a banquet beyond your wildest dreams. Come Come to the wedding feast. But they say, they say no. And, and any hope that you might have as, as a reader that these people had really good reasons to say no are cleared away by the following verse. They won't come not because disaster has struck or because something has come up that they just simply can't be pulled away from, but simply because, verse 5, they paid no attention. They paid no attention. They're indifferent 
They, they simply couldn't care less about this feast. They go off to their farms and their businesses. Those things aren't, aren't pressing. They, they knew about this feast in advance, and they had ample time to prepare whatever they needed to prepare that they could be absent from it for a while. But they're more interested in their own affairs, in their own pursuits, than in the king and the celebration of his son. The second group is even worse. They not only don't care about the king and his son, but they're openly hostile to it. They seize the servants, mistreat them, and kill them. Their intentions could not be more clear. This is an open declaration of their treason. And you can't help but see through the surface of this parable to Israel's past rejection and murder of the prophets and to their very near future rejection and murder of Jesus. And it's not only shocking, it's just so utterly, utterly senseless. We're left shaking our heads. Why, why would they do this? What, what could they possibly hope to gain by spurning the king's kindness like this? We can sense Jesus' own feelings of dismay and exasperation in this parable. Why would those who claim to be God's people do something like this? And that begs the question, did the chiefs and, and chief priests and scribes recognize that Jesus is talking about them here? Well, undoubtedly, they did. It, this is so obvious, it's hardly really even a parable anymore. They've already figured it out with the last parable. And so the utter senselessness of the previously being invited one's rejection of the king's invitation is not lost on them. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Like the king who laid out a wedding banquet and, and, and told his guests what he'd done for them, God has been saying to the people of Israel through Jesus and through the prophets, look at all that I've done for you. I chose you out of, out of all the nations of the earth. I called you out of slavery in Egypt. I gave you my very words of life, and I brought you into the promised land. I blessed you with abundance and plenty. I was faithful to you, even though you've constantly rebelled against me. And, and, now, and now I've sent my son. Won't you come and celebrate him? But they say no. They, they say no. Their hearts are unmoved in their pride and their arrogance, and they say no. Why? Why would they do that? John 1.11 says, He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And so the king responds. And, and the response of the king in this parable has struck many as sort of over-the-top, shocking. He sends his troops to, to kill those treasonous rebels and to burn down their entire cities. Shocking, yes. Harsh, yes. But not unexpected to ancient ears. Ancient ears. This, is, this is pretty standard for how a king would deal with rebellions. And note, too, that the fate is the same for both those who murder the servants, but also for, for the indifferent ones. The parable is not super clear whose cities all got burnt down, but whether or not the indifferent ones' cities also got burnt down, either way, their ultimate fate is the same. Exclusion from the feast, and even more, final and total destruction. 
While this parable is very specific to its context, Jesus is, is speaking very directly to these leaders. It's still relevant for us today. Like the king who, who held out the enticing offer of his banquet, and like God held out all that he had done for the people of Israel, God is, is still speaking like this to us today. He says to you, see, look what I have done for you. You were living in darkness apart from me, but I have brought you into my marvelous light. You were enslaved to sin, and I've set you free. I sent you my son, my beloved son, into this world for you. Look at how he resisted all temptation and lived a perfect life for you. How he died on a cross in your place for your sins, and how I have raised him to new life again, conquering death and offering you forgiveness and new life in him. See how he's in heaven now, constantly interceding for you. See all that I have prepared for you. Won't you come? And will we say no? <laughs> how could we? How, how utterly senseless and ridiculous and outrageous that would be. But it's easy, isn't it, for us to become wrapped up in our own pursuits, indifferent to the incredible offer of grace that we've received, and, and how hostile we can get when our own pursuits are threatened by the demands of Christ on our life. But the senselessness of such an attitude is clear. Brothers and sisters, let us not be among the indifferent and hostile ones. Let us repent of our indifference and hostility and come to the celebration of the Son. For truly a celebration is what it is. It's not drudgery or restriction, as so many in our world today believe. It's a feast. It's a banquet beyond our wildest dreams. Yes, it involves submission to Jesus, and yes, that means putting off and learning to hate the sins that we may love now. But in that pursuit lies true life and everlasting joy, such as no sin can ever hope to offer, despite all its false promises. The king invites you to come and celebrate his son. Come to the feast of joy. Which brings us to our second point, the wrong sorts of people. The refusal to attend this feast by the previously being invited ones doesn't deter the king. It doesn't thwart him. It doesn't ruin his plans. The feast goes on. He just issues more invitations. The king tells his servants in verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Note that the king doesn't say, well, go to these and such specific roads where you're likely to find these sorts of people. Go to the financial district where at least you'll find respectable people. No, he says go to the main roads where everyone can be found. Not the best ones, but as many as you can find. There is room at the king's table for anyone who will respond to the king's invitation. His offer is, is wide and it's indiscriminate. And, and the same is true of the gospel in our day, the call of the gospel. It goes beyond the old covenant people of Israel into every nation and country of the earth. And often it's the most 
surprising, the, the least likely people that respond to this invitation. We see examples of this in Scripture. Think of, think of Levi the tax collector, or of the prostitute who anointed Jesus' feet, or of Zacchaeus. The least likely people to even receive an invitation, let alone, let alone accept it. God's feast for his son is not going to be deterred by those previously invited ones, the nation of Israel, who reject his invitation. The celebration is going to go on. If those previously invited have rejected the invitation, then, then God will invite new guests to come. And so the text tells us that those servants did as the king, uh, as the king commanded. They went out into the roads, verse 10, and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. The king had told them to invite, but the word changes suddenly, and we see that the servants gathered, and that it's sort of a small detail, but it's also significant because customs of the day would have demanded that people initially rejected this invitation. Who, me? I'm invited to the king's feast? Do you know who I am? I'm a nobody. I have, I have no relation to this king. No, it's not, it's not possible that, that I'm invited. And so the servants must, must convince these people that they really are invited to the king's feast. And perhaps you too need to be convinced that you really are invited. Who, me? No. If you knew, if you knew what kind of person I am, if, if, if you just knew the things that I've done, that I've thought, no, I, I have no relation to this king. It's not possible that I'm invited. But it really is true. You really are invited to the feast of the king's son. And, and the proof is in the parable. It tells us what sort of people the servants gathered. It doesn't just gather the best people. They did exactly what the king said, gathered all whom they could find, and the wedding hall is filled with guests, both bad and good. Both bad and good. The gathering of God's people is made up of both those who are considered bad in society and those who are considered good. The wedding hall for the celebration of the sun is filled with many who would be considered the wrong sorts of guests. Yet they're guests who might be described as, as worthy. Worthy. That, that brings us back to, to verse 8, a verse we we'd skipped over. Um, it says this, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited, the previously been invited ones, were not worthy. And why were these original invitees unworthy. What made them like that? Well, it wasn't because of anything that they had accomplished or anything inherent in themselves, except for one thing, that they had refused the king's invitation. That's what makes them unworthy. And so the king sends out his servants to fill up the wedding hall with those who are worthy. And those worthy ones are surprisingly made up of those who are both bad and good. And that's because it's not, they're not worthy because of their status or their own inherent worthiness, but simply because they accept the invitation. We sang about this at the beginning of the service. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Inherently unworthy, they're made worthy as a result of their acceptance. Brothers and sisters, marvel at the transformative power of the gospel. The offer goes out wide and it goes out to all and, and for those who accept, they are made worthy. 
whether they be bad or good, all are in need of Christ's cleansing righteousness and the Spirit's transformative power to make them worthy. And if you haven't already accepted the offer of the gospel, the the invitation is free for you this morning as well. Whether good or bad, all who accept the king's lavish invitation are made worthy to sit at the celebration of the sun. So come. Well, this would just be a really wonderful end to the parable, wouldn't it, if we just stopped right here. But the parable doesn't end here. And so we need to deal with the next bit that that comes up, which is a bit confusing, and which I've titled as the wrong clothes. The wrong clothes, and that starts at verse 11. And we see three groups of people in this parable up to this point now. Three types of responses to the king's invitation. There are the indifferent ones, there are the hostile ones, and then there are those who come. And if you find yourself here this morning, more than likely you probably identify with that third group, those who have accepted the king's invitation. And yet, Jesus' parable goes on, and there's a warning here even for those people in the parable and for us. It may have been an initial acceptance of the invitation that, that finds them and finds us here at the wedding, at the, fe- at the feast, among the gathering of God's people. Yet in verse 11, we see that this isn't just about saying yes once, not just about finding yourself in the right crowd. Verse 11 and 12. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he, that's the man, was speechless. This man stands out from the crowd as the only one not dressed properly. In contrast to the other guests' appropriate clothes, whatever that might have looked like, his polluted and filthy clothes stand out immediately. And the king's response to this man seems extraordinarily harsh. He, he tells his servants not just to escort this man out, but to actually tie him up and toss him into the, into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And even in Jesus' day, where they probably cared more than we do about proper clothes for an occasion, this would have still struck them as, as a very harsh response from the king. Over the top. Cruel. And, and if we were only dealing with the story as a story, then that would be an accurate assessment, I think. But, of course, we're dealing with a parable, and Jesus' original listeners knew we were dealing with a parable. And so we know that there's more going on, and we need to ask the question, what do these wedding garments represent? And clearly, they, they represent something that is big enough, a big enough deal to get you kicked out of the kingdom of heaven if you don't have them. But in the previous verses, we just saw that it's nothing inherent in a person Both the bad and the good are invited to the feast. And we saw that even those who are described as bad are welcome to sit at the feast and are made worthy to be there. So now, what are these these wedding garments then? Put simply, the wedding garments are a metaphor for righteousness. Righteousness. And there are two, two senses in which this is meant. The first sense is the righteousness that Christ earned by his perfect life, and that are are given to believers when they believe in Jesus. The Bible says that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so that's the first sense. The second sense has to do 
with the works, the righteous works that we produce, that any true believer inevitably produces as evidence of the genuineness of their faith. And it's both these things because these things are, are so tied together. You don't belong at the wedding feast of the Lamb if you are not clothed, if your faith, sorry, if your faith is not evidenced by the righteous living of a true disciple. And you can't produce those righteous works if you are not already clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And so what do the wedding garments represent? Righteousness. And where does that righteousness come from? Jesus. And how is that righteousness evidenced in the life of a believer? In our works. And so it's a lack of righteousness that gets you excluded from the feast. And some people have taken issue with this part of the story, demanding to know how a guest who is randomly invited in off the streets should be expected to have the right clothes. But that's not really the issue that we should be focused on because it's not the issue that the parable is focused on. The parable makes it clear that he was expected to have the proper garments. Everybody else has them. Um, And in that culture, verse 12, it says, and he was speechless. That's an admission of guilt. You have nothing to say to defend yourself. And so that's not the issue. The issue is not how was he expected to have those garments. Clearly he was, and it was possible. The issue is that this man is a wedding crasher. He's a kingdom crasher. He's characterized not by, not by ignorance, but by disrespect and obstinance. Sure, he'll come to the feast, but he's going to do it on his own terms. But that's not how it works. Good and bad people can come to this feast, but once you come in, you have wedding garments. You could be a moral person without a wedding garment and be tossed out, or you could be a formerly bad person with a garment and welcome to stay. And the point is that, is that now is the time of God's patience. Now is the time of his forbearance. Now is the time for you to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. Now it's not too late, but it will be when the king returns. The man at the banquet in the parable, he failed to be clothed in the proper garments despite the fact that everyone else around him had them and he had time to get them on. This is not a simple mistake, but a stubborn refusal to submit to the king and show honor to his son. He wants the benefits of the feast without actually celebrating the son whom the feast is for. And this warning is still very relevant for us today. People are attached to church for all kinds of reasons that, while in and of themselves are not bad, are the wrong reasons. The social aspect, the sense of community, of belonging, maybe the programs that a church offers for your kids or for yourself, those are good things, but as a result, People find themselves sitting in a pew every week who have never been transformed by by the gospel. But brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are called to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Have you truly turned from your sins and turned to Jesus for forgiveness and new life? Do you see evidence of your transformed heart in your transformed life? Or are you trying to attend the celebration of the king's son on your own terms, based on the power of your own righteousness? This man who wants to be at the feast on his own terms is judged alongside the indifferent 
and the hostile crowds. Those who try to worship Christ on their own terms will face the same fate. Those who disregard the free offer of salvation through Christ and try to worship Christ without Christ and his righteousness are sent to hell, which is what the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness, is talking about. And so there's a warning here. And the passage concludes with a statement that that takes us out of the parable. It's a sort of summary statement. It says, For many are called, but few are chosen. This is a sobering statement, and perhaps we're reminded of the parable of the sower way back in Matthew 13 or Matthew 12. Many initially respond to the invitation, to the call of the gospel with enthusiasm, only to, to wither and die. It's only those whose faith takes deep root who are in the end saved. And so let us not flatter ourselves with an empty title of of churchgoer. Let's not be confident in the fact that we just go to church. Let's not be lax in our faith. The king invites us to celebrate his son. His son who came and lived a perfect, righteous life that you and I could, could never attain. The son who drives out death and pain and sorrow and sickness. The son who walked the long road of Calvary for sinners who had nails driven through his hands and his feet for sinners, who hung on the cross and bore the full wrath of God against all the indifference and hostility and self-righteousness of sinners, and who now clothes sinners in his robes of righteousness, the son who will one day wipe away every tear from your eye. But this is not about trying harder. It's not about looking at yourself and seeing your own filthy rags and and trying harder to make them clean. But it's about accepting the robes of righteousness that are freely offered to you in Christ. If you see your own sinfulness, if you see your own lack of wedding garments, then go to Christ. Go to God in prayer and say, Father, I've sinned against you. And, and I know that I, I don't stand here before you because of my own righteousness, but because I'm clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus, and so I seek refuge in my Savior. Remind yourself of this truth every day, and come to the celebration of the Son. Come confidently, knowing that whether you come good or bad, He makes you worthy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are, are so rich in mercy, so abounding in grace, that you would call lost sinners to yourself, that you would go out to the highways and byways of society to search for poor lost souls like us. Your kingdom is full of all the wrong sorts of people according to the standard of this world. But thank you for Jesus who makes us worthy to stand in your presence. Lord, two wonders here that that we confess our worth and our unworthiness. Thank you for inviting us to the celebration feast of the Son, to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Help us not to be like those previously been invited ones who find themselves too busy, too indifferent, or too hostile 
to bother with your feast. And help us also not to presume on your open invitation and, and think we can appear at your feast in a manner of our own choosing. That we can come based on the merits of our own righteousness. Help us rather to gratefully and enthusiastically accept your invitation, humbly accept from you the righteous robes of Jesus and be found among those who are seated at the feast, made worthy by the perfection of our Savior. And so we seek refuge in our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.